You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And yes, this is your host, Daniel Hurwitz, in the house for a new week here at Conservative Review, powered by Westwood One Podcast Network. It's Monday afternoon, July 30th, and I'm just slowly moseying into this new week from a nice weekend off where I pretty much shut everything out. You know, I used to work a lot on Sundays, and the kids often complain that I was just so obscure and I never was with them. And, and you know, I, I said to myself, I just got tired of this. I would often try to work on long-term projects on Sunday when the news cycle wasn't so busy so that I could man the the ship, you know, so to speak, as things were coming in in real time during the week, and I wouldn't just have my brain focused on my more long-term projects. But then... Now, I said to myself, until I can get more colleagues focused on fixing this republic, um, why should I miss out on my life? You know, it's just kind of insane. So, yeah, I mean, I had a good time this week. Um, spent all sorts of time with, with the kids and uh, really, really enjoyed it. You know, my eight-year-old, he actually didn't know how to ride a bike until just a couple of a couple of weeks ago. Not that he didn't know how, it's just his personality is such that he's so scared to take that first step, you know, give yourself that push and put both feet on the pedals. And I kind of gave up a couple of years ago. I just gave up on it and then time flew by. And the problem was my younger son learned already when he was five, Joshua and then Zach, who's the youngest, is three. You know, he's the most athletic of the bunch. So wouldn't surprise me if he learns pretty soon. So I said, my gosh, this is this is really just a problem. It's a problem socially and everything. I got to get him to um, to learn because I knew he really wanted to. I wouldn't wouldn't have pushed it on him. And uh, it, it clicked a couple weeks ago. And now you know, obviously, because he's eight already, um, you know, he really physically is able to do it. So you wouldn't even notice. And he's all all into it. I took them on trails and everything. And then we spent the latter part of the day having water gun fights in the backyard. And, and I'm telling you, you know, this is why you got to become a father early on when you're younger. It just sapped the energy out of me running around with them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just around that age when they're coming of age and you could actually have fun. They're six, eight years old, older too. And uh, I was thinking, man, if, nowadays these families that don't even start until 35, 37 years old – with a lot of people, by the time they're that age, or you're in your 40s and pushing 50, it only gets harder from there. So, I mean, I'm really tired. I'm exhausted just from that weekend, um, but really glad I didn't spend it all on uh, on just you know sitting in front of the computer on the phone with different people plotting and scheming. And you know, here we are back to it this week. And yeah, I mean, it, it was a quiet weekend. It's going to be a quieter week because. Uh, the House is is uh, their work is done, like we spoke about with Andy Biggs on Friday until Labor Day. Um, the 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 Senate is um, is doing nothing. Um, 
the 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 Senate is is officially in. You know, McConnell officially extended it a little bit, but they're not doing anything useful. They're just voting on these uh, budget busting spending bills, the the flood insurance, which is going to cost another twenty five billion, and nothing, nothing on immigration, nothing on the courts, nothing on anything we care about. Not allowing any amendment votes from conservatives, the typical, typical garbage. So you know what? At this point, it's better the Senate just go away. Um, but you know what? That's the thing. I, I kind of alluded to this on Friday, and I'll have an article coming out today. Hopefully, we could uh, get it into the show notes if it comes out by then. That while Congress is out for the summer, guess, guess who's not out? Guess who never rests? You got it. The real Congress, the real legislature, and that is the judiciary. See, the ACLU, which basically runs the country because they control the arc of litigation and where these cases go, they have enough full-time staff 24-7, 365 days a year to successfully take the existing insane jurisprudence that's even accepted by conservative judges and place any issue they want in the court system and pretty much get the ruling they want in a forum shop district judge, usually within a circuit, which is really the majority of circuits are pretty raunchy, like we're going to talk about today. And then it takes forever, even when the Supreme Court would otherwise agree with us to get them to actually take it up. And then even when they take it up and reverse it, it's just that one case, but 999 other cases that are similar, they just keep coming back for, for more, and the clock starts again. Basically, this is our running thesis for months on why the judiciary is all that matters, why we're not going to fix it with the Supreme Court picks, and why, unless we get Congress to get back on the playing field, elections won't even matter. They won't even matter. Now, as I've noted last last number of months, this upcoming budget fight, if it even winds up being a fight, should be everything from our perspective. I mean, this is where we should be placing all of our, you know, political weaponry, our messaging, and and yet no one's there. And and look, you know, the good news I have to report on that before we get to the courts is that both the president and Jim Jordan, with his platform now running for speaker, were very emphatic uh, on this fight. Now, whether it's real or not in the case of Trump, I don't know. Um, but I am glad, you know, I said the most immediate test for Jim Jordan is whether he's going to use his kind of platform as a speaker candidate to push the GOP into a budget fight in September. And I, I didn't, yet get to do an interview with him, but we do have, um, organizationally, we have an interview with him. Uh, my, my buddy Chris Pandelfo has it up. We'll put it into show notes. His interview, um, just over the phone, it's not recorded, but he has it in print, his interview with Jim Jordan, where Jordan says exactly what we were saying. Why wait until after the election? I mean, even some of my friends in the administration were saying, well, yeah, let's punt it till fe- February. Like, What? then you're for sure going to lose the election. Right now, unless they do something drastic, they're going to lose the election. Man, and, and I want to possibly get back to that at the end of the show if we have time. 
But, uh, you know, so that's what Jim Jordan, Trump tweeted out over the weekend. We must have border security, get rid of chain lottery, chain migration lottery, catch and release, sanctuary cities, go to merit-based immigration, protect ICE and law enforcement, and, of course, keep building much faster the wall. Um, and then he hinted to this in another tweet. I'm trying to find this. Um, where Where is this? Where he basically said... Um, quoted Tom Homan, the ICE director, but this was before, he basically said, I'm willing to shut down the government. Now, I don't think the messaging is so good because he's kind of preemptively placing the onus on himself, like he's shutting it down, whereas he should blame it on the left. They're shutting it down in order to uh, fund sanctuary cities and defund border security. But the messaging is fine, but I will just warn you, he said that the last couple of times with budget fights and then didn't follow through with it. But, you know, again, this is where we need a conservative movement to be tell the president, hey, we have your back and to constantly um, have a pressure campaign on McConnell and Ryan and McCarthy, obviously use Jim Jordan as leverage against Kevin McCarthy, who badly wants to be speaker. This is what we should be doing. And by the way, as Jim Jordan reminded um, my colleague we did kind of have, you know, earlier in the year, we had this, uh, you know, what is it, two, three days of a shutdown, which wasn't really a shutdown, where the Democrats got crushed because they were trying to push amnesty. So we, we clearly have evidence that on the immigration issue, we're going to win, especially if the president properly uses his bully pulpit. So, no, nothing has changed since we've met together last. and That is still the most important issue, short-term issue. Now, the most important long-term issue, which very much ties into this, is the judicial supremacy. So, you know, what happens is it's kind of tough just so you know, we only have one copy editor here at Conservative Review with all of our content and everything. And uh, Cindy, her name is Cindy Keeler, she's out this week on vacation. So we have our um, part-time fill-in, Becky. And by the way, Becky used to be one of our original originals here. You might remember she had a couple of articles herself. She used to post. Sometimes we co-authored things together. She used to work for uh, Tom Coburn. And, uh, you know, she became a mother when she was working at a conservative review. Recently, she had her second kid, a boy. And she's like, hey, I ain't turn around from that. And, you know, good for her. She's She basically retired from full-time work to be a mother and, um, she's not missing it. <laughs> uh, I, I told her from day one, I said, look, you know, it's with a heavy heart. I let, you know, we're letting you go here, but, uh, I can't in good conscience try to convince you to come back because, you know, it's much better to be a mother than ba- bang your head against the wall with this stuff. But nonetheless, she's, she's back for us this week, but we only have one copy editor. So it's often hard. I know s- sometimes I feel bad. Sometimes my articles are kind of long and, you know, brevity is the key, but some of it is just, I don't have time every to every few hours to just get something out just with our whole system and amount of people we have. So sometimes I have to pack it all into one. But anyway, throughout the week, you have these insane court rulings that they'd be funny if they weren't actually consequential. Like they're being implemented. And I don't have time to nail each one. So I figured I'd start off the week by just going over how just pretty much from Tuesday to Thursday – Pretty much a 72-hour window of last week. I, I wrote about nine insane court rulings on major issues in just a few days. And and I really have in my notes about 15 of them. It's just 
the article was getting ridiculously long. So, um, you know, there's really more where these come from. And taken together, I want you to read it. I want you to understand that this proves many of our theses on the judiciary. That they are accomplishing overnight 50-year culture war battles for the left. Social, fiscal, national security, border issues that the left wouldn't dare push often in the legislature, or if they would, they wouldn't succeed, even with Democrats in power. And here they get it for free with a federal judge. Some of them eventually will get overturned. A lot of them won't. And either way, they're creating a political and jurisprudential velocity through the body that doesn't stand for election. There's no reprisal. And they basically have their cake and eat it too. You know, at least if they pass some of this stuff um, – Open borders, you know, transgenderism, uh, illegals voting in a sense, uh, being counted in the census, radical abortion agenda, attacking Catholics. I mean, all sorts of cases we have here. Medicaid must pay for gender, gender mutilation surgery, that they call it. No public prayer. They would get clobbered in elections for this. But guess what? All this happens quietly in the courts. They don't have to stand for election. Democrats don't suffer any electoral reprisal, and that's it. And it's it just, to me, it's, it is so stark, the contrast between the legislative and judiciary bodies that the legislature is off for six, six weeks, and pretty much they're off the whole year. They did nothing this entire year. By the way, they have, by my count... They have just 35 legislative days left to the year where they're both in session together, where both the House and Senate are in together. It's roughly eight or nine days a month. So even after they come back um, after Labor Day, you know, because then they're only in for a little bit until they probably screw us on the budget. Um, they end uh, pretty early in October to go and run for elections, and then you come back for the lame duck session. Now, again, I mean, some of you might say, look, if they're only going to do bad stuff, it's better they're away. And I guess it's true. But it's still it's, – it, it is so sad that it's the courts that are basically doing everything because they don't go on vacation. I mean, say what you want about federal judges. They do work pretty hard. The caseload is huge. They give standing to everything. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, they're working overtime. And you know, I, I just want to point out one, one point. Um, you know – you know where I feel stand on this issue. You know, obviously, where Mark Levin stands on it. But Convention of the States, which not to be mixed up with a con con, a constitutional convention, you know, like kind of some of these state referendums where you would open up the Constitution carte blanche to revision, it's an Article 5 Convention of the States where you have to have 33 states agreeing on an exact language on specific amendments to even go convene a convention just on those things. And then you can only consider what's germane to those things, and then you'd have to have it ratified by 38 states. So, you know, my to the extent that there's a rub against the Convention of States, to me, it's the fact that it's an underwhelming remedy, that it's just it's it's so difficult. I mean, when are, how in the world could we get 38 states to to get this? You know, we have about I, I apologize to I know we we have a big contingent contingency of COS fans in the audience here and I for I apologize for not knowing the exact number but we have something like 15 states on board but just 
understand those next 15 states are demonstrably harder to get. And then the final few are really, really going to be difficult because you're, you're, you're essentially talking about Democrat states. But, um, you know, e- even Mark Meckler, um, who, who we, we've had on the show a couple times talking about the Convention of the States, he'll tell you that what they hope to accomplish is fairly modest. But nonetheless, some critics on the right, some friends of mine, actually, you know, if you think like, look, this is not where it's at. It's not enough. There's other remedies. I'm all open, you know, to hearing it. And we, you know, we entertain a lot of different remedies here, not just one. I'm not going to focus on on one remedy. But what I can't relate to is the argument against it that it's too powerful of a tool, that somehow it's going to turn into a runaway convention and the left is just going to come and use it for their stuff and, you know, codify abortion, transgenderism, and read out you know freedom of speech and freedom of um, religion and 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 the uh, Second Amendment. And I, I laugh, I laugh at that argument. I'm like, do you not see what's going on? The left engages in a con con, not not a you know convention of the states, a con con, where they completely revise and bastardize the Constitution. What's a state power they give to the feds? What's a fed power they give to the states? What's an unalienable right they read out? What's antithetical to our founding and, and a you know unalienable right they codify as the most unassailable right of the Constitution? They've already done that. They do it in the courts overnight without batting an eyelash, without suffering reprisal. Why would the ACLU pursue a process that's so rigid and you can only do one issue at a time and you have to get 38 state legislatures on board, both bodies of it. Why would you do that? Why? If you could just get any number of certainly the hundreds of um, Obama judges and, and you know even a lot, certainly a lot of Clinton ones and even some of the George W. Bush judges to give you what you want. And um, and that's the thing. So I want I want to want to go through one of the each of these one by one, just so you see the damage that is taking place in the courts. And I also want you to understand as you're listening how th- this why the courts are a one way street and a dead end, as I've said so often, because the it's only our side that respects Supreme Court precedent, even when we don't agree with it. Certainly in the lower courts, we respect it. The other, the, the liberal lower court judges don't respect it. So they could keep doing what they want. So, you know, last week we, we talked about together um, the TPS case where you had temporary protected status, which is a temporary status that you give to people not here illegally. It's just if you happen to be traveling here during a time of a, you know, a hurricane or earthquake and you're home country you could stay until you could go back court so we had we had a boston judge last week that ruled that um a lawsuit can go through a, to, to to make tps permanent because trump was racist and therefore he can't follow immigration law and he actually has to violate it because he's racist so we wrote about that last week um you know, we we could put that. Let me just make a a note for it here in case some of you have not seen it. Um, we'll put it in our notes. 
I, you know, there's no point in going through the details of that now. You could read that. But there was another case, another case that is, I'm telling you, is very consequential. So again, you, you look at what's going on, and I want to just set this up by saying before we go, go to the next immigration cases and then some other ones, you look at the few good things that Republicans have done. They control you know, roughly 30 state governments. They control the federal Congress and the presidency. They do very few good things relative to what Democrats would do if they controlled it. But the few things they try to do, guess what? Because of our understanding of judicial supremacy and the refusal to push back against it, the courts just toss it out. So one of the um, issues that Trump's uh, Commerce Department, in preparation for the new census, they were going to have a, a question on there um, asking for citizenship. I mean, we ask your gender, we ask um, all sorts of demographic, ethnic information, which really has no bearings on the constitutional function of census and reapportionment. So, you know, all he's doing is reinstating a question that was there. It was somehow like just dropped in the 1950s, but it was there for most of our history, as it should be. Now, Trump is not even going the step that we are arguing that, and I'm working with some members of Congress to try to push this, that, um, you know, citizens, that, that ba- ba- basically to discount illegal aliens from the census. So, in other words, California wouldn't get their five extra electoral votes. He's not even doing that, but I guess they suspect he might somehow take this information and do that. So imagine this. States now have the power to sue the president over his – he has plenary power over the census. It's not the state's job. It's the federal government's job to properly reapportion the – you know, the vote, the allocation of delegates, of congressmen, that is a federal job. That's why we have a federal government. So um, this judge, judge, judge Jesse Furman, of course, a New York judge, liberal Obama appointee, ruled that this lawsuit may go through. And it's not just ruling it might go through. If you actually read what he said – it's very clear he's tipping his hand even on the merits. Um, I'd be surprised if he doesn't wind up siding with them. No, the president cannot. You're not allowed to find out in a census designed for reapportionment of the vote how many people are citizens. Because he said that the states had plausibly alleged that, quote, because of Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric, he's tainted. So, you know, a couple, couple things here. A couple of things that are important to point out. Number one. The um, the president, it, it took 16 months to finally get the ruling on the so-called travel ban. And, you know, we noted that we're not we're, we're already not getting any relief from that court opinion because the lower courts are coming back with a thousand other angles to challenge immigration law and Trump's implementation of basic sovereignty laws. But we thought we at least shut down one avenue of the lawsuit, which is basically that because in their view, Trump is a bigot, everything he does in the realm of immigration is tainted, and it's invidious and discriminatory. So therefore, 
you know, whereas other people could implement immigration law, he's not allowed to. He, he I guess, has to violate it um, because he's a racist, and being a racist is unconstitutional. Now, so, so first of all, you're seeing from both the TPS case and this case, we're not shutting it down. It's as if John Roberts' opinion on behalf of the Supreme Court and Trump via why never happened. So this is another, you know, ironclad proof to my thesis that nothing will change, even if we have nine justices on the Supreme Court, if we're going to submit to the insanity that any district judge could just determine national immigration policy. They're going to keep doing it. Now, another interesting thing here is, isn't it interesting how the states are completely denuded, and you're like you're going to see in a couple minutes, of regulating their most basic state local internal affairs, regulating health, related abortion uh, clinics, uh, on health-related issues, defining marriage, defining human sexuality, election law. Yet they have the power to steal from the federal government immigration and the census. 100% flipped on its head. 100%. Meaning it's the exact opposite from what our founders had in mind. They had in mind that the feds would control reapportionment. States can't manipulate it. That was the whole point. I've said this often. They wanted one of the reasons why we moved from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution was to prevent states from artificially juicing up their representation and screwing everyone else. You can't assert, oh, no, state power. No, because that affects everyone else. It was just once the Fed set reapportionment, okay, you California – you get this number of people because this is the number of citizens you have. You Arizona, you get this. You Pennsylvania, you get this. Then here's the, here's the date of the election. You must hold an election. You can't subvert that. Otherwise, you're abolishing the federal government. But then from there, in terms of the times, methods, and procedures that elections is laid out in Article 1, Section 4, states would have full authority over election law. And here the judiciary is flipping it on its head. The states could basically grab reapportionment for themselves in immigration policy, the top lines, what should be the whole of the union, but somehow then when it comes to the individual locally based state election laws, how many early day, early voting you want to have, how much, if any, the type of just ballot delivery, voter integrity laws, no, states are denuded from it. Just unbelievable. So that is the first case. But there's more. <clears throat> Just taking a little uh, soda break there. And, and no, I actually didn't even use a straw, by the way. Which I should, because it's really terrible for my teeth. I'm such a caffeine consumer that, you know, <laughs> it's probably better I use a straw. But guess what? You know, in Baltimore... They're one of those places that are going after straws now. You know, just a detour here. I'm going to get back to the courts in a minute. I just was thinking about, you know, speaking of spending time with kids and raising kids, you know, how do you explain to a kid, your child, especially when you live in a place that's as violent um, as the greater Baltimore area, and he sees that, you know, violent criminals could basically just reign supreme and everyone has to be scared of them every second. Nothing is done about that, but somehow, you know, they can't have straws. I, I, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, this is a serious question. 
even to some of our liberal listeners. I'm just really wondering. Um, you know, how do, how do you give that over to a kid? I mean, they, they have a lot of fond memories of straws. Uh, they're all big yogurt drinkers. <laughs> and I say drinkers because they would, you know, stab a straw through it, and that's how they would, all three of them liked eating it that way. But it's, it's just really sad that, you know, you have to explain to a kid that basically we have a government that won't lock up the criminals, but will ban straws. You know, there you go. The breach of the social contract. So moving on to immigration, last week, and, and I just picked one. There's a number of a number of these cases where just every day the courts are blocking deportations now. The one area where even the Warren era courts wouldn't venture into. But um, this was a George W. Bush judge in New York. Basically said that ICE cannot deport an illegal alien. Why? Well, because he was a pizza delivery man. And according to the court, he never had a criminal record, and he was a really an upstanding citizen. Well, he wasn't a citizen, but they feel he should be a citizen. Now, look, you know, courts have done worse because the courts, as we've noted for months here, they're downright blocking deportations of criminal aliens. I mean, there was a whole hundreds of Iraqi rapists and murderers uh, in Michigan that this judge Goldsmith there blocked their deportation because he said they'll they'll be tortured in Iraq. But the point is, courts are now creating a legal baseline. I want you I want you guys to understand this: that an illegal immigrant is here to stay unless ICE could prove he committed a crime, aside from coming here illegally. But you know, again, think about this. Think about this. I I, I told a friend of mine recently who's worked in immigration policy for three decades. And I said, you know, I I wasn't trying to make her feel bad, but I said, how does it make you feel that basically what you successfully blocked in the legislature, you know, since 86, we've blocked large-scale legislative amnesties. People don't want it. Yet now the courts are accomplishing overnight for the Democrats, even with Republicans in charge, what the Democrats themselves, when they had the full power you know, in the Obama-Pelosi era, 2009, 2010, what they couldn't or didn't accomplish. I mean, even the legislation they want to pass, most of it is not this radical. That you're basically saying everyone here, every single illegal here, is here to stay if, if, unless you could prove they committed another crime. We have no country left. But again, th- this is an example. I mean, do you, know, you understand the amount of debate you would have on that? You know, Congress would you know pass a bill that says anyone who's here illegally, um, you're 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 on a fast track to staying here. You're you're really here to stay unless you commit a crime. I mean, that would be a huge deal, and they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to pass it. I would argue, even with Democrats in charge, we might find out, but certainly with Republicans in charge. But it doesn't matter because the courts are doing it. Then we turn to abortion. So, you know, part of what's gone on um, in the courts the last number of years, you know, obviously since Roe and Casey, is that it's not just that they're saying abortion is enshrined in the Constitution. It's that abortion is a super right that you can't even pass common sense regulations. I'm not talking about barring it. 
But I'm talking about anything that that in their view would be any bit of a notional burden to the so-called fundamental right. That is now a problem. So you know you had the slew of, for example, the Gosnell laws after um, you know it was exposed all the all the things Kermit Gosnell did in his clinics, and, and really, I mean, this is just pure common sense. You know, e- even if you're rabidly pro-abortion, if, if you cared about the health of the women, um, you know, this is a pure healthcare regulation. And, and, and what's amazing is that the government controls every single aspect of healthcare. I mean, the, the doctors can't do anything without insane paperwork that costs hundreds of billions of dollars a year and destroys healthcare in America. That's all kosher. But the minute you want to put some sort of not even barring access to abortion itself, but some sort of um, you know extra paperwork for an abortion for murdering a baby. Oh no, that you can't do. So I, I want to use the case study of Indiana because this case came up last week. This is in that couple days of radical court opinions that I went went on to notice, and you know Indiana is an example of a state where you know over the years we've kind of turned over. Where Republicans have consistently won the governorship and you know super majorities in the state house and senate, but you know like most Republicans, most of them are rhinos. You know, no different than every other state. But even the few good things we pass gets thrown out by the courts within within days. So basically, everything they tried to do on abortion has been undermined by the courts. Last week, um, this was the Seventh Circuit. Now it wasn't the full and bunk. Panel. I don't know if they're appealing it, Bong. Maybe we'll win it. Three judge panel, um, and uh, you know, but this three judge panel had two Republican appointees on it. Now, one of them is Ilana Rovner, and she's the one who wrote the opinion. She is, um, she was a Reagan appointee, but she's been a radical pro-abortionist and pro-homosexual agenda forever. Um, they ruled that Indiana's law requiring an ultrasound within 18 hours, right? Just within 18 hours of abortion, you have to schedule an ultrasound so you could actually see what's going on. That's an undue burden to a constitutional right. And they were upholding this injunction from this district judge, Tanya Pratt, who's been putting all sorts of things on it. Um, You know, Ilana Rovner is funny. She says, women like all humans are intellectual creatures with the ability to reason, consider, consider, ponder, and challenge their own ideas and those of others. Really? So now you're going to rule every other in any state thing, not governing murder, that that also uh, takes away from women or men's ability to reason, consider, consider, and ponder their life choices for themselves? Or is it only murder where we're suddenly uh, big libertarians? Again, think about it. States could now sue for more immigration or to count the legals in the census, but they can't just put a common sense regulation and say, look, you know, you got to get a, um, an ultrasound before having an abortion. And you know this is part of a slew of, of abortion regulations, as I note in my piece, um, from Indiana that they've struck down. They had a, a law that um, I wrote – I think I wrote about it at the time in 2015. They had a law 
barring um, abortions for genetic factors like Down syndromes or um, race or sex selection like they do in places like China. And the court struck that down. Um, the court said, you know, again, talk about paperwork. The court said that Indiana's law, which required more paperwork from doctors um, to report complications from abortions. You know, again, of all things that there's a state interest in, which are all upheld, we know, when it's dealing with commerce and not with murder, not with a cultural issue. Somehow when you deal with a cultural issue, oh, undoing um, – you know, puts a puts an undue burden on a, on a fundamental right. And by the way, the same district judge also blocked their law barring funding to Planned Parenthood. So Planned Parenthood has the right not just to not to be regulated with basic common sense healthcare regulations that any other healthcare provider would would have to go through. Um, they have a right to to, to state funds too. Now, th- th- there's there's another important point I want to bring out in this case. And you're going to hear it from me a lot. So Ilana Rovner is a Republican appointee, but she's a leftist, so fine. Okay. But there's a third judge who wrote like a softer concurrence, but he ultimately concurred with the opinion, um, Michael Kahn. Um, you know, and I, I have a friend who clerked for him and considers him a conservative judge. But ultimately, he said that this was compelled by a Supreme Court precedent, that at the end of the day, this is part of – it's you know not that he's agreeing it's a fundamental right, but once you do, this is an undue burden. Now, notice how – I'm not even saying that they should undo Roe and Casey at a lower court level, that I, I expect conservative judges to you know go, go against that. But what I'm saying is they won't even rub up against it. They won't even like do what the left does and split hairs and say, well, OK, this is a different case. I mean, really, Rowan Casey necessarily says you can't say you need to get an ultrasound? Like, that reaches the level of a burden? But nonetheless, they do. And this is the point. So juxtapose that to what you just saw on the immigration cases, where when the Supreme Court is with us, the lower courts will just split hairs. No. So one of the other cases I have in in the list is public prayer, which we've noticed. Talked about a lot. Supreme Court was very clear in Town v. Galloway, Greasy Town v. Galloway, that public prayer of you know legislatures, you know governing bodies to convene their session with a with a prayer is totally fine unless they're you know putting a gun to someone's head and making them do it. If it's elective, it's totally fine. But the Ninth Circuit last week said that a local school board cannot do the same because students were often in attendance, and that kind of made it a different story than the case of the Supreme Court. And similar to what we noted in the Fourth Circuit with, um, you know, where they were saying, well, the Supreme Court might have only said you could hire a chaplain. The county commissioners can't do it themselves. Case in North Carolina. So again, notice how they're willing to find any hair to split to go against the Supreme Court precedent. But people on the right, when they know the Supreme Court's violating the Constitution, they won't even like they'll liberally apply it to every similar case when it's not necessarily compelled by precedent. That's the imbalance you see between so-called conservative and liberal justices on lower courts. And that's one of the many reasons why I believe we're not going to fix the court simply by just a quote appointing better judges. Okay, then you have the case. This is another one, the case of 
Catholic charities, adoption agencies, being forced to deliver kids into, you know, homosexual couple arrangements of no fault of their own. You know, you know it's funny. We always hear that the American people should be burdened with illegal aliens because they're here of no fault of their own. But really, it's certainly not the fault of the American people. But no one ever says, you know, shouldn't we allow kids to choose that we should, of no fault of their own, deliver them into the hands of um, just this, this arrangement? I mean, even again, even if you consider yourself a social liberal and you're okay with this socially, and somehow even if you, to the extreme, believe the Constitution mandates gay marriage, but the notion that anyone could believe, I don't care if you're religious, not religious, whatever, that is a hundred percent equal. A same-sex couple, a heterosexual couple. No, no, no. That there's no difference, and that all things equal. I mean, really, we should mandate, but at least allow private adoption agencies to only deliver to the hands of, um, you know, normal parents. It, it just boggles the mind. Yet. Federal judge in Philadelphia said last week that um, no, they uh, they must do it. They must do it. Um, the interesting thing here is once again, guess which Supreme Court case they cited? Masterpiece Cake Shop. He called it a narrow holding. And said so it had a narrow application. And by the way, in this case, there was a lot of evidence um, with the Philadelphia mayor um, saying anti-Catholic things. So, you know, like basically the whole point of Kennedy's decision in Masterpiece Cakes was that, yeah, the First Amendment doesn't really apply. Bake the damn cake. Uh, you know, government could force you to violate your conscience and property rights. You don't have property rights unless the law is applied unevenly and in a mean, you know, rude way. Well, this was actually rooted, but still, they, they said it doesn't apply here. So this is another case we pointed out in Arizona a couple weeks ago, another case where all these conservative thumbsuckers are like, oh, we won in the Supreme Court. We don't have to now have an emergency fights in the states and Congress to protect religious liberty because the courts are doing it for us. And I said, uh, actually, the lower courts are going to have a field day with Masterpiece because 99.9% of the cases is going to rule against us. The ACLU said the same thing, and they were right. But isn't it interesting how Planned Parenthood, which harvests baby organs, can claim a right to avoid any healthcare regulations? Right? They could even demand public funding. But adoption agencies can't merely be left alone to uphold the longstanding American common sense values of ideally placing a child with a mother and a father. Think about that. I, I want you to understand the juxtaposition. juxtaposition. You have private so-called charity groups. You got, you know, Planned Parenthood on the one hand, which is regarded as like, you know, women's health, and then, you know, a child adoption agency that's Catholic or another religion. One of them is not asking for federal funds. They don't, they're not asking for anything. It's just, look, look, just let me do my job. Let, let me just be left alone. Don't tase me, bro. You can even go and do your gay adoption stuff, but don't make us do it. No, you must do it. But here where they're murdering a kid – so 
No, on the way to murdering the kid, you can't even tell, make the parent feel guilty and actually get get a um, uh, ultrasound or, or, or you know just basic ambulatory um, you know healthcare restrictions on abortion clinics. No, that 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 uh, violates an undue burden. See, you see that it is more of a right to murder kids than to deliver them into a home of a loving mother and father. This, I mean, do you understand the insanity of how they're just winning overnight? 50-year culture battles, indeed. Gets worse. Okay, gets worse. So um, let's move on. Your daughter will shower with a boy, and she better like it. Judge Marco Hernandez, an Oregon federal district judge, last week ruled that it's a civil right for someone with a ying and a yang to go into the female uh, private dressing rooms, locker rooms, showers, bathrooms, um, or vice versa if uh, he, uh, he believes it floats his boat that day. Parent, what about the parents who were horrified in the school district there? He said, screw you. Take your kids elsewhere. Um, so th- th- there you have it. You don't have private property rights. You don't have religious conscience rights. You don't have Second Amendment rights. And the federal government doesn't have immigration powers. But by golly, transgenderism is in the Constitution. This judge, it w- he was ultimately appointed by Obama, but he was originally selected at the end of George W. Bush's de- term. So another one of George W. Bush's appointees. And by the way, last week, um, the Third Circuit, I I believe it also had a GOP judge on it, codified a similar thing, um, transgenderism, into uh, Title IX of the 1972 uh, Education Amendments. Yes, the 1972 bill, um, you know, designed like, you know, equality between men and women was really intended to allow – people with gender dysphoria to horrify other people in their private dressing rooms. Um, yeah. I mean, there you go. But let, let, let's move on. Medicaid must pay for gender, gender mutilation. So the courts are now getting involved in fiscal issues too. Right? They're saying what must be covered under Medicaid. Last week in Wisconsin, District Judge William Conley ruled that two individuals who are seeking sex change, uh, mutilation, castration, whatever you want to call it, um, they must be covered by Medicaid uh, to have that operation. Now... (laughs) Now, I forget the, the story. One of them wanted – one of them's a man. No, I'm sorry. One of them's a woman who wants to be a man and wants her breasts cut off. I'm not kidding. And, it, and it's just it, – it's. I almost feel like crying because, you know, I know a lot of people, um, you know, at a very young, tender age that got breast cancer. And, you know, they, they were forced to go through such a thing. Um, not electively, you know, to save their lives. Um, 
and then certainly, you know, they go through the reconstruction, you know, so that it could, obviously they could, um, you know, after the cancer is gone to, uh, you know, still feel like a woman again. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, aside from going through the, you know, just the, just the terrible, uh, upheaval in one's life of facing down death of cancer, but, but, you know, how it could, you know, I can only imagine how, what that could do to a woman just, you know, just, um, having to go through that. And here you have people that unfortunately suffer from a very, very sick mental illness. They want to electively do the, you know, female version of castration. And, um, you, you, you must pay for it. Medicaid taxpayers must pay for it. Wisconsin taxpayers must pay for it. Um, in Conley's estimation, she, uh, the uh, um, the the w- what the state was doing by not covering it quote feeds into sex stereotypes by requiring all transgender individuals receiving Wisconsin Medicaid to keep genitalia and other prominent sex characteristic char- characteristics consistent with their natal sex, no matter how painful and disorienting it may prove for some. I mean, in any other era, this judge, William Conley, I don't think he would have been impeached. He would have just been marched out of the um, out of the building and placed into a mental asylum. But we'll treat this as the law of the land. I mean, and again, you know, there's a couple of points to be made here. Everyone's always like, Daniel, are you saying that um, uh, we shouldn't listen to a court? The courts are putting a positive on a negative that deals with funding. How could a court say to a legislature and an executive branch, you must fund, use taxpayer funding to fund castration? You do it. Hey, judge, take the scalpel and cut the balls and the breasts off. Hey, you do it. Oh, whoops, you don't have the power to do it, so shut up. A judge doesn't have such power. Let let me put this another way. How could... Governor Walker, in this case, the Republican-controlled uh, legislature in Wisconsin, how could they violate the Constitution and statute and also the Hippocratic Oath and order such a thing? How? You know, put, put aside the Medicaid public funding. Let, let's say this was private. How is this – can someone explain to me how is this even legal to do? To electively cut off your male or female plumbing. Think about it. Think about it. In in so many states now, and in others, the courts are even mandating it. You're not allowed to engage in, in homosexual conversion therapy. So here you're talking about, um, let, let's just say from a male vantage point, let's just compare, compare apples and apples. A male who is a male, you know, the chromosomes are there. Um, and, you know, he feels he has certain proclivities, he has certain um, inclinations, and he wants to consensually sign a contract with a psychologist like any anyone else and just have therapy. He's not touching you, not doing anything immutable to you to engage in therapy. No, that, that is terrible, messing someone up. Oh, you can't do that. Okay. But you mean to tell me that you could take a male and a doctor, it is totally legal for a surgeon to just chop their balls off and then inject them and mutilate their body 
How is that even? I, I don't understand. Every last thing of straws are being banned. Environmental risks, allergies, health care this, health, health concern that, trans fats this. But you could literally mutilate someone in the worst way imaginable. And that's laudatory. So you juxtapose the two together. And I made this point before. Basically, the courts are saying that it is more natural for a man to be a woman than a man to be a man. Because you could totally take a man and try to make him a woman, and that's totally fine, and even mandated funding under public health care programs. But you can't take a man who is a man and just simply try to reorient his inclinations and overcome sinful inclinations, which, by the way, you know, affect heterosexual inclinations too. You could go to a psychologist for that as well. You can tell me that's not natural. Here it is. And then finally, we have my last frontier, of course, controlling economic policy. I've warned about this. So courts control every single cultural issue. Every social issue is decided by the courts. Now we've learned with immigration that national security border policy is set by the courts. You know, you have one single judge in San Diego now literally controlling our entire border policy. But I warned I warned some of our friends. So, you know, a lot of the Federalist Society, the so-called right-leaning legal eagle crowd, they they're not so bothered by this because politically they're liberals on immigration, abortion, you know, sexuality, whatever you want to call it, and they're not bothered by the outcome if not the legal rationale behind it. So they don't really care about it. And they want to use the courts to strike down, you know, liberal nanny estate stuff, economic stuff, things like that. But I've been warning that the courts are going to venture into the economic issues and there's we're going to reach a time where the courts are literally literally going to start just like they strike down basic, you know, election law, immigration law, they're going to strike down tax cuts, spending bills, um, spending priorities, welfare reform. You know, part of it we haven't even I, I don't think it's the fact that, oh, we're not there yet, the courts might get there. And as I'm going to demonstrate in a minute, they, they already are there. It's just you don't see it too often because Congress isn't exactly doing this. But I've always said if if tomorrow – if Congress would pass Jim Jordan's welfare reform bill tomorrow, um, it would be taken to court and they would get a nationwide injunction on it you know, from some California or urban you know, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago judge in, in, in three days. And that sounds funny. Like, what do you mean? They're going to determine, determine economic policy? Yes, they will. Because the same way they use to control, um, you know, social policy, namely identity and race, they wrap it into the 14th Amendment. They do the same thing with fiscal policy. So in Alabama, and this is outrageous, this was an 11th circuit, which is not even like among the worst. So it, it demonstrates they're almost all bad. 11th Circuit, um, basically in 2016, in response to, you know, you have this in some states where even red states, you could have a red state, but you have blue cities, and the city of Birmingham, they passed like some out-of-control minimum wage. You know, this is the big rage. Um, it, it's very easy because all these failing, you know, blue cities, so – you know they have to demagogue in some way, and oh, I'm for the people. This you know pseudo populist crap. So they pass something like a ten, eleven dollar minimum wage. 
So, you know, it's funny. When it suits the courts, they're, they're so into federalism. So now even states don't have control over cities. And no, so in 2016, the Alabama legislature passed a law to supersede that. You know, you can't um, create your own man- mandatory minimums beyond the, the state wage. It was taken to court, and the eleventh and and um you know the the district judge judge threw it out. It was like that's stupid. They appealed to the eleventh circuit. Eleventh circuit said no, because seventy two percent of Birmingham and because uh most of their city council they're they're black. Therefore, you saying that cities can't set minimum wage has a disparate impact on black workers, and then the court actually did, didn't just say like disparate impact like in like a you know, an obnoxious way, actually said racism. Although it's not being proclaimed directly from the, you know, legislature or whatever, quote, the racism hides a bashed cloak beneath ostensibly neutral laws and a legitimate basis steering government power towards no less invidious ends. Can you, think, can you understand that? The courts are now setting minimum wage. So a lot of you who are laughing off this lawsuit from the states against the tax cuts, think again. This is where it's headed. And by the way, as a fun fact, one of the three judges, Ann Conaway, is a Bush appointee and was appointed to the FISA court by John Roberts. These are, these are the people you have in the FISA court. So there you go. States can't set their own uh, minimum wage. Finally, I want to end... With the final case here, and I, I know we've gone through a lot, but you know, I figure you're you're not gonna see this or hear this elsewhere. And that is guns. So again, you know, you might think, okay, okay, fine, we've we suffer from judicial supremacies striking down bad laws, but maybe if we take it to a good circuit like the Fifth Circuit, we could strike down, you know, bad laws that are nanny state that we believe are unconstitutional are legitimately unconstitutional, right? And I know this is what motivates a lot of the libertarians. Guess what? The Fifth Circuit ruled in bonk, eight to seven ruling, with a number of Bush appointees joining throughout the lawsuit against a longstanding federal law barring cross-state gun purchases. Right? So, I mean, this is a very big factor in limiting choice and barring um, and just raising prices. It's annoying for anyone who buys guns. You can't, you absolutely can't purchase without an FFL um, across state lines. So a bunch of people in Texas sued, um, sued in federal court. Uh, Like, look, you know, I mean, if all this other stuff, I'll have a right to, you, you have a right to sex change operations and publicly funded, publicly funded Planned Parenthood. You can't put any burden on abortion, even if you're not even, like limiting any abortion, just putting some sort of like requirement, a uh, positive requirement ahead of it. No, you can't do any of that. But the the court said no. You, you, this is um, it's not an undue burden. And you know, one of the rising stars, Judge James Ho. And by the way, I do give Trump credit. All four of his appointees were on the right side of this. They're like, wait a minute. I mean, you know. <laughs> This is something that it says shall not be infringed. So think about it. When it comes to abortion, gay, this, and all, all the stuff the left wants to do, 
any like little anything is an undue burden, even though it's a BS right, an antithetical to a right that's made up. But the one thing that is codified in the Constitution, which was really predated to the um, uh, predating the Constitution as um, a fundamental, unalienable right, natural right that didn't even need to be spoken, according to Madison. Um, but it's codified in the, in the most um, unambiguous terms: "shall not be infringed." Like all these gun laws are being upheld. Now, again, I'd be fine if we get rid of judicial supremacy across the board, or like, you know, okay, we're not going to accept every pro-gun ruling as gospel outside of the plaintiffs that apply the same way we would limit other things, fine. But if we're going to have all this other garbage, and that's why I saved this for last, you better believe something that is legitimately in the Constitution, I want to benefit from, you know, I want the courts to actually interpret the right, have the right interpretation of the Constitution. And there's no way you could tell me, the, the point Judge Ho was making is that, you know, yeah, there's times when obviously they could regulate, you know, machine guns or whatever, but you can't categorically ban something. There's no way you could take a shall not be infringed and say there's no way under any circumstance any firearm any of any caliber in any way can be purchased across state lines. There's just no way you could say that. Transgenders and abortion illegal immigration aren't in the Constitution are, – are in the Constitution, but the right to bear arms is not. Folks, that's where we are. That is where we are. Um – you know, you take this all together. Nothing matters. The elections, everyone's focused on the elections. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter until the courts are dealt with. This is something you will not hear on any other show. Unfortunately. But you're going to hear it from me. And so I figured before we get into the other news of the week, which we'll get to you know later this week, I just wanted to give you this foundation from all the court cases that happened last week. Now... Many of you might be wondering, gosh, how do I keep track of all this stuff? How am I this fired up? Well, you know, between trying to save the republic and deal with three rambunctious uh, kids, by the way, one of them is screaming in the background now. I'm, I'm uh, working from home today. And, uh, you know, how do, I do, how, how do I deal with that? It all gets back to having a good night's sleep. That's why I have purple mattresses. I went to purple.com and bought myself a mattress. And you know what? I might even buy my kids one. <laughs> maybe maybe they'll sleep better and be less obnoxious during the day. But the purple mattress is different than anything you've ever experienced. It's not the crappy memory foam that uh, these other places put out. An actual rocket scientist developed it in a way that you have the unique firmness that supports you. You don't wake up all achy or toss and turn in the middle of the night. But at the same time, it is soft. Really, really comfortable. Very breathable, very cool, especially for the summer. Um, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to go to purple.com. If you, it, it doesn't hurt. Trust me, a 100-night risk-free trial. You do not pay for shipping. You don't pay for returns if you're not satisfied. 100 nights free. Um, but I believe you will be satisfied, and you're going to keep it. And then when you keep it, you get a 10-year um, warranty. Again, free shipping. Go to purple.com, issue promo code Daniel, and at checkout, you're going to get a free purple pillow, which in its own right is worth it because um, it, sometimes it's even more important than the mattress itself. Really, I mean the right plushness. You never want it kind of too high for your neck or too low. Purple mattresses, the most comfortable, most scientifically backed 
mattress you'll ever sleep on. Um, and that's the way we're going to do this. Heck, I think we need a conservative movement that has purple mattresses. Maybe that will give them more energy to actually fight back against the tyrannical courts. Until next time, God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.